We are in part 13 of our Hebrew series entitled Our Faithful High Priest, and it is a 19-part series, so we are rapidly coming to a close. We're going to be closing up chapter 10 today, and I just want to begin by looking at that handout sheet. I'll give you the fill-in-the-blank here in a moment with a couple simple comments up front. I entitled this morning's message, Living in Light of Victory. And I just want to talk about some obvious pieces. Uh, let, me, let me understate it, because I believe that if you put any thought into it, you're going to think it's a bigger deal. Uh, and it's this. There's a shocking lack of difference between believers and non-believers in our world today. Uh, we're not very different. Uh, the thing that probably kills me the most is where we are known to be different as Christians and non-Christians. I wish we weren't known for that. The things that we should be known for, we are not. For example, I wish these statements were more likely to be said. Things like, man, I don't even know who that person was, but they were so incredibly kind and patient with me and loving. I bet you they're a Christian. That actually should be a phrase that is used a lot. Unfortunately, phrases like, man, that person is wound so stinking tight, I bet you they're a Christian. Right? We're known for things that we shouldn't be known for and not known for things that we should be known for. I want to ask you merely to assess your life in light of this concept, which is, why were people drawn to Jesus and why were people repelled from Jesus? And are they the same things in your life? Or are people repelled from you for other things, or are they drawn to you for the wrong things? I would hope that every one of us are a magnet for the hurting. Because they would say, I need someone in this life that's not going to hurt me, judge me, or tear me apart. I need someone safe to go to, and we are their immediate thought, that we would be their safe people. I would hope that that is the case. I believe very much in the idea of difference. There should be a distinct difference between a believer and a non-believer, between a Christian and a non-Christian. It should be obvious. The fill in the blank is the reason why. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. In light of Revelation, live differently. Not the book of Revelation, the concept of Revelation. In light of revelation live differently all of our actions are based on our beliefs or our thoughts or our concepts when you learn something new you should act differently if i said something now m maybe some of you don't know that there are train tracks main train tracks just on the other side of the street over here let's say there's a train hauling at over 100 miles an hour and it's going to crash and i'm letting you know it's going to wipe out this side of the building if i told you that i would hope in light of that revelation, this side would move over to this side, right? If you don't, you either don't believe me or you don't think it's a big deal and somehow I've overassessed the situation. When Jesus says something to us, it is to cause a life change. We are to alter because of what we have heard. If we do not, there's a reason why. 
We've somehow assessed him to either not be talking to us or what he says is no big deal. I'm going to venture to say Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about and he is likely talking directly to us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. We're about to see this point be magnified in this passage. Some of you maybe are are newer with us. I would encourage you to join us with the podcast and catch up kind of to where we're at. We've been talking about a concept for weeks now, which sounds intensely boring, but it's not. It is the idea of going through how the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. We even had the whole tabernacle idea set up here. You saw all the pieces. We talked about the high priest had to do this and the priest did this. And you could not go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. If you did that without severe cleansing and preparation, you could be struck dead being in the presence of God. And we talked about all the ritual cleansing and we've gone over time in describing the old system. Then we had Easter And we watch the author transform us by the power of the cross by saying, Jesus has paved a new way for us. He has cleansed us. He has healed us. He has made a way for us through the curtain that we could have never imagined before that. He has absolutely defeated the enemy and we can live in victory. And we've had all this powerful truth poured out on us. All right. If that is true then it should require a change in lifestyle. That is the heart of where we're headed today. All right, let's pick it up in verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. And and a lot of times I told you that when we read this on the first reading, it's hard to get and then we have to figure it out. This one's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, You may not understand all the concepts, but it's one of the more practical pieces and it starts getting more and more practical As we move forward, we are just on the edge of chapter 11, where we begin the hall of faith and talking about some incredible stories of believers of the past. So there's all kinds of excitement moving forward. All right, here we go. Chapter 10, verse 19. It says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for quote yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. All right, that was kind of crazy. That was like encouraging hellfire brimstone. Oh my gosh, right? All right, let's pray about it. Heavenly Father, we open up our lives to you and we open up our hearts and our minds to you. May you help us to filter through and discern your truth. Would you train us in your word that we might learn how to understand you, know you, drink your word in. Holy Spirit, you have free reign here. This is your home. You do as you will. Convict where you need to convict. Encourage where you need to encourage. We are following your lead. We praise you today. And we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's zoom back to verse 19. Let's begin. Let's go through line by line. Let's see what we have. The first word is key. The first word is therefore. Therefore, there should be cause and effect there should be an effect of what we know therefore in light of all that we have been talking about in light of all that used to be and all that jesus has done there should be a different way of viewing things and living therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places that means we are sure that it is allowed to enter into the holy places what does that mean the presence of God. Since we are sure we are allowed to approach God without condemnation. Why? By the blood of Jesus, by his payment and his cleansing of us. By the new, meaning new covenant, new way of doing things. And by the living way, because it's tied to him. We know we have confidence because of a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. All right, let's pause for a moment because he said something a little bit weird there. He opened a way for us through the curtain. That one, as I've always read it, I immediately went back in my mind to that whole long dialogue that we have about in the tabernacle where their little church thing where they would meet with God, the priest would go into the holy place, but there was a curtain, a veil that was between them and the Ark of the Covenant where God would meet with his people. Remember I told you that curtain there, though it may have been a heavy, thick curtain, it was about a million miles wide, symbolically, because you were not allowed to go through there. If you went through into the presence of God, you were struck dead. So that curtain was the shield that would protect man from the power of God and God from the impurity of man. But Jesus, we found out, 
symbolically walked through that tabernacle and opened up a way. How do we know that? Because when Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished, what happened to the literal temple curtain, but it was ripped in two from what bottom to top or top to bottom, top to bottom. Why is that important? Because God himself ripped the curtain into what man could never do from the bottom. He ripped the curtain open and suddenly it went from one guy, one time a year, being able to go in there only if he was perfectly cleansed to God going worldwide and allowing us to have access by the blood of Jesus to approach God's presence unhindered, right? So we all look at that and we go, man, that is powerful. All right. So then I'm doing some reading and studying and a number of commentaries mentioned this phrase. That is through his flesh. Did you see that? Now, normally, if you're reading this, you just blow past that and move on to something you understand. I get that. I was tempted to do the same. But I'm a pastor, and I had to teach it, so I had to slow down. What that phrase means, I'm not entirely sure, but the commentaries began to look at it, and they said, do you realize that what we did not need was an alive Savior of Jesus in the flesh that as long as Jesus was alive the sins were not paid for and that his body like a curtain as long as it was together still shielded us from seeing the full revelation of God it was not until it was torn apart on the cross that God's love was fully known so as long as he was alive for those 33 years we were still blocked out But once his spirit was rent in two, did we then see God face to face and see the full revelation of his glory? I thought, wow, that's an even deeper level of power in the word, yeah? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest, a real high priest in Jesus, over the house of God, that is us, because the Bible says that we, like living stones, are being built together as people into a place where God will dwell. One of the great things about church is that Jesus Christ indwells you, Jesus Christ indwells me, and when we come together, he has communion within the Trinity, and we have connection together, and it creates a whole new dynamic, as opposed to being alone. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Draw near to God. That is an active command. There is no such thing as inactive Christianity. By definition, Christianity is an active, dynamic, moving faith. There is no such thing as couch potato Christianity. There is no such thing as just stagnant, not doing anything, not going anywhere, not having any transformation Christianity. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is consistently provoking towards growth. You actually have to hinder it or shut it down or quench it for it not to occur. Therefore, let us draw near. You go draw near. What does that mean? It means get next to God. You go, where's God? I don't know. Go find him. Why? Because he's on the move. 
kind of like the Holy Spirit being like the wind. Remember when Jesus said, you don't even know where it's coming or where it's going, but you see the ripple effects. Chase after that. You know, you hear these phrases like God chasers, right? Where you're just saying, you know what? God is moving. Go join him in where he is. Draw near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Why? Because he honors that pursuit of him. You do not just sit back and wait for, oh, I don't know, maybe God will somehow knock on my door. He's going, man, I've been knocking on your door the whole time. You're not even paying attention to me. How about you come out and pursue me? Because then we'll put forth a little bit of effort. Now, all of a sudden, your heart's engaged. Let's do that. We are so sedentary in our spiritual lives. Let us draw near in what type of way with a true heart, a genuine legitimate heart now granted everybody comes to jesus with mixed motives i get that but is it always the same level of mixed motives or somehow are we at some point going to mature enough to pursue god for good reasons pastor daniel henderson from arcade baptist church back in the day here in town probably said a million brilliant things i remember one very crystal clear i don't know if he came up with it it doesn't matter But I remember him saying, when you get near God, are you seeking his face or are you seeking what's in his hand, what he can do for you? And I thought about all the prayers that I've ever done and all the ways that I engage with him. And I, and I do that very rude thing that if someone came up to you and you kept staring at their hand, waiting to get something from them and you're not interested in them as a person. And I thought, how many times do we do that to God? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, meaning we're confident in what we know, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, what Jesus has done on the inside and what we have symbolically shown to the world on the outside as we have been cleansed by all that God can do. Let us be confident in that. Therefore, verse 23, let us hold fast. Never let go the confession of our hope, meaning never let go the idea that we're moving forward, that there is an afterlife, that God's presence is better than here. Never let that go. Now you go, why would I let it go? Well, is it because someone's trying to take it out of your hand? You know, enemies, world, flesh, devil, stuff like that. You're battling with it. Or are you just dropping it? You're going along with your life. Nothing's really all that fascinating about Christianity. You don't really care anymore. And so you just drop it. Never let go of that. Hang on to it with all that you have, with that ferocious grip. Hang on without wavering where you are headed. For he who promised is faithful. A personal savior can get you home. Once again, let me just merely highlight that christianity is active i let me issue you a challenge all right here we go uh recently uh susie and i we were watching on tv they were doing a replay of a few good men anybody ever seen that movie yeah all right uh by the way i don't remember it being that long ago but tom cruise looks like a child so I have a feeling it's been a while, all right? If you remember, at the beginning of that movie, they're on a military base, and the military guys are doing rifle formations. 
um, where it's like click, 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 all the way down the line, and then they spin back down, and they put their rifles up, and then down, and then move it to the other shoulder, all that stuff. And I was watching it a bit mesmerized, and Susie said, what a waste of time. <laughs> Which is probably more accurate. Um, and I said, well, you know, actually, it's about discipline, and she didn't care. Anyway, the, the point was, she's like, that's stupid. All right. Here's what's intriguing about it. If you never go to war or you're never in a battle and you're constantly practicing your rifle, at some point it's boring. Can we all agree with that? You go, yeah, I keep shooting at a target. At some point, yawn. Okay, that is the majority of our Christianity. What do I mean? I mean that many of us, majority of us, do not want to read our Bibles on our own or pray or engage in learning because it's boring. Most of us live a very boring Christianity. So there's no point in continuing to practice your rifle if you're never going to shoot it. But if you're in a foxhole, you wish you practiced more and you wish you were a better shot. So what's my point? My point is go out and do something dangerous. That's my point. Go out and put your faith on the line and go get shot is what I'm telling you to do. Why? Because then it matters. Because if you're consistently way back in R&R, way behind and, uh, on safe lines, on friendly side of lines, then the constant repetitive I'm working on this stuff is just flat out not interesting. It does not wake you up in the morning. It's not exciting. You have no need. But if you're on the front lines and you know you have to use it every day, people are drilling you for answers. You're leading people to Christ. New believers are asking you questions that you don't have the answers to. Then you wish you knew more and you were paying attention. If you're not using it in a teaching capacity, if you're not leading a small group, you're not out there serving in a ministry, not putting everything on the line, risking everything, feeling like at any moment you're going to look like a complete idiot, then you don't care. Your Christianity is too boring and you don't even want to bother growing. That's why. So Christianity is not boring. Your lifestyle choice in Christianity is boring that's different trust me when you're out there getting hammered with challenge and struggle and strife you want to read you want to pray because otherwise you're open to exposure and it's scary i don't know maybe some of us need to mix it up yeah we need to get a little bit more on the out on the edge all right here we go Verse 26. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to dive back into a warning piece. Remember, the guys he's talking to are tempted to bail out on Christianity because of persecution for it. They want to go back to the safe way, the old way, which he just told them is no longer available. So he's saying, if you shut down Jesus Christ, there is going to be huge ramifications and so he goes into a warning. It's one of the most severe warnings in all of Scripture. He says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately, that phrase doesn't just mean habitual one sin. It means the habit of your entire life is to live selfishly and shove God away as if he has no value to you. 
If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus has done, knowing what Jesus offers, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you reject that which cleanses, you don't have anything left to cleanse, right? I mean, it's pretty basic. The only thing left, verse 27, is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I'm not going to get all into the whole lose your salvation, blah, blah, blah. We've handled all that. You can listen to that on a podcast. What I will tell you is this. Living selfishly has dramatic implications. And God does not just take it lightly that you would shun him and live for yourself. That's not okay. He uses an example of the Old Testament, verse 28. Now anyone, meaning in the ancient Israel world, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament law that there were certain things that if you did them, for example, idolatry, you worshipped another god other than Yahweh, and you were an Israelite, and it was witnessed by two or three witnesses, and you did it deliberately over a period of time, they would kill you. That's the law. It's a capital crime. It's capital punishment. You're stoned. You're done. There was no, hey, we totally get it. You know what? You, we're all free. Hey, we're all individuals. It was, we will kill you. He said, wait, now if that was how things went for stuff like idolatry and some other things where you deliberately shun the law of God. Remember, the sacrificial system was for unintentional sins or things that you were struggling with. It was not for willful disobedience where you were shutting God down. That's not what it was for. For that shut down, I don't care about God anymore. I'm shoving him away. You were killed for that and cut out of the community one of the two. He said, if that's the case in the old way, verse 29, how much worse punishment? Some of you need to spin out in your heads on the idea of varying degrees of punishment from God. What does that mean? How does that work? Is that eternally? How does that thing happen, right? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. If people were killed for lesser crimes, then how much worse is the punishment for someone who has had Jesus clearly displayed in their life, demonstrated, engaged with, to then treat Jesus and the Trinity with such contempt and disdain that you go, I don't need you, I don't want you. You spit in the face of God and say, it's all about me. Whoa, that's insane. That's called hellfire, right? That's that brimstone stuff we're talking about. Why is he so serious about it? Because God's serious about it. Look at the next phrase. For we know him. We know who? Well, the Father initiated those words. The Holy Spirit allowed it to be written down. For we know him who said in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God does not just go, no, it's cool, I get it, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. 
And again, in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now that is intense. Why? Because I need you to understand this concept. We spend all of our time judging ourselves on a sliding scale around us. Oh, look, you're kind of a loser. I'm kind of a loser. I'm kind of a C, right? Because uh, I'm better than you, but I'm not as good as you. And, I'm, and we do this thing. But the standard is an all-righteous, almighty, perfect in righteousness and justice God. In light of that purity, then how ought things to be handled? That's the difference. Because we go, man, God sounds mean. No, God is righteous and pure and holy and other. His righteousness is a natural implication to crush that which is unholy. Does that mean God's mad at me? It means God is mad at the unholiness that dwells within you, which is why he has provided a way to cleanse it. Will you allow him to cleanse it? Or are you too stubborn and willful that you expect God to do things your way? That's not going to happen. One thing that's intriguing is although I agree that you should not minimize righteousness in light of grace, right? Because we all stare at grace and then somehow we think that God just lets things go. Do you realize that when David, King David, was given an option on what his punishment would be, he chose to fall into the hands of God? Do you remember that? Why? Because his status with God was different. When you are a child of God, even though it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of dad who may well paddle you, it's better than falling into the hands of an enemy. So is it fearful? Yes, it is. But if you are a child of God, you fear not wrath, but correction. And that's different. Let's pick it up, verse 32. He said, the other reason why we cannot go backwards, we cannot go to the old way of doing things, we must pursue our walk with Jesus Christ, is... Man, we've gone through too much together. I mean, we've been walking this thing. Y'all know what it was like. Let's recall the former days. Right? When after you were enlightened, you were brand new to this whole thing. You were fired up for Jesus. Oh my gosh. Uh, There's a whole new way of doing things. I mean, Jesus can cleanse us and forgive us and we can walk in grace. Man, you were all fired up. But right then you got persecuted. You remember that? You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Why? Because a Christian life is hard. Life is hard. Whatever you want to say. And sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Man, publicly they would shame you and embarrass you and harm you. And sometimes, you guys, we were partners with those who were treated like that. We were guilty by association. Because we hung out with other believers. They got busted. We got busted because of them. Verse 34, he said, do you remember that? Remember the example, for you had compassion on those in prison. That put you in danger. All right, let's pause real quick. Let me clarify something about prison ministries. Yesterday, Chuck Colson passed away. Everybody know who Chuck Colson is? Chuck Colson uh, became famous because he was part of the White House administration during the Nixon era, was part of the Watergate issue, 
in being corrected through the penal system of prison, he got saved and made his whole life about ministering to those in prison. He will leave a legacy that is extraordinary. He is a great man and has done so many wonderful things. Now, his ministry to prisoners was significant, and it should be modeled, and it is modeled here as well. We have a prison ministry, and it's significant and valuable. However, I'm a big stickler about context, so can I clarify something for you? When the Bible says to minister to prisoners, it's talking, by and large, about Christians who were persecuted for their faith and were put in prison for that. Can we be clear on that? Why would people hesitate to visit them? Well, let's go and say we are in a communist country where Christianity is not allowed. If you go visit a Christian in jail, a target is now on your back, right? That's why no one would do that. The Bible says, no, put yourself out on a limb and go do that anyway. That's actually what the Bible's talking about. It's not talking about a prison ministry. Now, should we do prison ministry? Absolutely, because of other passages. For example, there is... Very few places that are more ripe for evangelism than prison ministries. Why? It's almost like being able to minister to people in a foxhole. Because when everybody is intensely focused of coming face to face with something they have done and have time to consider the things of God, it's in prison and it is a beautiful place to be able to talk about what matters in life. So I believe that of all places you should put energy into, what a wonderful place to put it there. To love on them who maybe society has rejected, but we as the church say, we love you. Also, there are Christians who are on the inside that are just as much as part of the body of Christ as any of us on the outside, and they need to be enveloped with loving arms as well. That is why we do prison ministries. But can we please not utilize passages out of context to say that's why we do it the context is off all right all right cool let's move forward he said you joyfully when you were all fired up for jesus you joyfully end of verse 34 accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one man you didn't even care when people ripped off your stuff when the state took it away or the mob would take it away or whatever because you were a christian they'd beat up on you and take your stuff you're like you know what so what you took my car who cares I'm going on, man. I mean, there's another life for me. I don't care if you take my stuff. Stuff doesn't mean anything to me. I'm going somewhere. And where I'm going, that stuff just doesn't matter. Therefore, man, you guys, we've been so hardcore. Why would we turn our backs? Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't you dare walk away after all this. Real quick side note. Some of us need a small group just so we can make it another week. We play this game where I don't really want to be in a small group. I don't really know anybody. Here's the deal. If you don't have other fellowship and accountability and help and support, you're going to fall away. I mean, that's the fact. So you have to be connected with other believers. It's just the way it has to go. Why? Because you'll die without it. It's a necessity. It's a vital piece. Does it always have to be a small group? No. It can be a ministry. It can be this. It can be that. I mean, there's a bunch of things. But make sure you're not alone. Let's finish it out in verse 36. 
For you have need of endurance. You have to be able to stick in there. Why? So that when you have done the will of God, live the Christian life that God desires, then you may receive what is promised without having all your rewards hijacked along the way. For, and then he quotes a couple different Old Testament passages and mushes them all together. Isaiah 26, Habakkuk 2, stuff like that. He quotes this stuff. He said, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Meaning our Savior Jesus will come. But my righteous one, those that are mine, those that have faith, they shall live by faith. Where they live knowing that it is true despite whether or not they have all the details nailed down. They live as if it's fact. But if they shrink back, my soul has no pleasure in them. If you bail out on me and for selfish reasons just go, no, I don't want to do that. That's hard. I don't take any joy in that. But we, those that are listening to his voice... Those that have a soft heart to learn, to submit to God, to be willing to go that extra mile with Jesus. We are not of those who bail out on their faith and are destroyed, whether by condemnation or correction. But we are those who have faith and preserve our souls. Okay, I finish with this thought. You will not by and large accidentally arrive where you want to be spiritually. Unless you do it on purpose, with a focus, allowing discipline and training. You can't just kind of roll with it and see how it goes. You must purpose in your heart that you will be a certain type of believer. You must dig in, train, prepare your spiritual muscles so that you might do the work of God. There are things that you will become capable of doing spiritually that you never imagined if you'll train that way. It's the same thing in the gym or anything else that you would walk in there and say, I have no upper body strength. There's no way I can do this. Well, no, whenever anyone goes into the gym for the first time, no, they don't. But through continual training, you begin to develop muscles and then you start being able to do things you never believed possible. I understand that for some of us, we question whether or not we are ever going to be the spiritual giants that we look up to. I would suggest to you, the answer is absolutely yes. Because they too are human like us, and they serve the same God, and we share the same Holy Spirit. Do not give up. Do not shrink back. Do not ignore it, but pursue it with all you have because it's valuable. Amen? Let's pray, and I'll give you the final challenge, and we're out. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing group of believers and, Lord, those who are considering you. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to rescue in our midst, that you would continue to lead all those that we know in our circle of influence to you. Lord, utilize us, put us on the front lines, put us in danger that we might have an exciting Christian life, that everything that we do matters. May you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Final closing challenge is simply this. I want you to write somebody an encouragement this week. Why? Because you're thinking all these nice thoughts and you're not writing them down. So you got three options. You can text them. That's the pansy way. You can email them. That is semi-legit. If you want to go hardcore, go snail mail. Why? 
because nobody writes snail mail anymore. And every time you go to the mailbox, it's always another credit card offer or it is uh, junk mail or, you know, some type of mailer or whatever it is. And it's bills. So if somebody has a card in there that is personally written to you, it transforms their day. And all I want you to write to them is an encouragement. Write to them why they bless you. Write to them that you're praying for them. And write to them that it matters that they exist. 